you wholeheartedly. And so we, uh, we call on you to uh, flow your words through our servant, Rob, and uh, that your words would come to us and that we receive them in the way that you intend them through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Did everybody get a seat? Because I know it was kind of crazy back there. Are we okay, Steve? Do we need to push him in a little bit or everyone's sitting? Okay, good. Wow, can you believe this weather? Are we supposed to like it or not? I mean, I love it. <laughs> All right, we're continuing the series uh, through Kings, but before that, I just got a few, what we're going to just call a few house cleaning items. <laughs> That's actually a good preview for where we're going this morning. Um, you're actually not going to believe this one, okay? But we're going to turn over a new leaf and start on time. Okay? Listen, believe in us, okay? Encourage us. And we're going to apologize to you because it's on us that we haven't started on time. The reason for this is not because this is an event or a performance that needs to start on time. That's not why. It's because what goes on here is more than what goes on in this gym. And that there are children workers that just give so much of themselves. And it's really to be sensitive to them. Okay? So I thought you might clap at that, but that's okay. (laughs) Distractions during the service. I wish I was not maybe so ADD and I was better and I could, like, not hear the baby crying or people getting up for the third time to get their cookies, um, their coffee, going to the bathroom. And my kids are, are some of the worst at this. And I've, I've had the talk with them. Do your best to go to the bathroom beforehand if you aren't that person that can stand, sit for an hour and a half, Okay. Um, And then in terms of children, we're going to provide a place for infants, and we're going to make that comfortable for you. Uh, We'd appreciate that. Um, It's not that we take ourselves too seriously, but it'll just help with, you're going to help me a little bit as I hopefully serve you. And then, what? Yes, I know. We are in a gym, you guys. You know that, right? We can shout things out like that. Finally, let's just help with teardown setup. That probably doesn't apply to you guys because you guys are here uh, for the 9 o'clock. But if you come for the second service, um, we want all hands on board. So, okay. Series on the kings. Need to know this part of the Bible because they point us to the king who brought the kingdom. And the kingdom is God's rule. It's heaven. It's, it's God's space coming to earth, to our space, and God bringing shalom to chaos. Okay, so when you read your Bible, the first thing that God does is he establishes a people called Israel, and it's through this people that God is going to establish his reign. He's going to unleash his kingdom because they are to be a city on a hill. They're to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, and they're called to bring Eden to the world. Now as this story moves along, God adds another dimension. He adds a king to the kingdom. And now everything's going to be kind of dialed in on the king. 
It's going to be through God's king that God's going to establish his reign, that he's going to unleash his kingdom both in and through his people because the king is to be a shepherd and sheep follow the shepherd. So he is to shepherd Israel and in that way now the kingdom now rises and falls on God's king. I think what we've already gotten a good taste of so far as we've looked at all this, is failure. In fact, as you read God's story, you see a lot of failure. Adam fails. God's people fail. God's kings fail. And you can't help but then ask, okay, God, why, why are you doing it this way? Well, the reason why God is doing it this way is because God is setting the table. He is preparing the world for his perfect king when in the fullness of time, this king, this perfect king, will unleash God's perfect rule and bring God's perfect peace to chaos. The world will once again return to Eden. And I love how this is pictured in Isaiah The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The lion will eat eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And a young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's what we get to look forward to. Now we're coming to a hugely important text. Very important king, Hezekiah. And I'm going to tell you, this this thing has been like water to my soul this week. It's been like this healing balm. And I don't know if it's going to have that effect on you. But this story of Hezekiah is so important that It's the only story in the Old Testament that's told three times. I can take you to 2 Kings 18 and 19. I can take you to Isaiah 36 to 39. But I'm primarily going to take you to 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. So let's just step a little bit into the story. I'm not going to read it all right now. We're going to cover a lot. Uh, But let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Second Chronicles, we're going to start in chapter 29, and I'm just going to read a few verses to just get our, get our feet wet. Does anybody have a page number? 365. Here we go. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abiyah, daughter of Zechariah. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. And in the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. He repaired them, and he brought in the priests and the Levites, and he assembled them in the square on the east side, and he said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate God's house. 
Remove all the defilement, the trash, the rubbish from the Holy of Holies. You're getting a picture of what he's stepping into. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They forsook him. They turned their faces away from Yahweh and the Lord's Mishkan, his dwelling place. They turned their backs on him. And they also shut the doors of the Holy of Holies and they put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. And now I intend to make a covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now. The Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him and to minister before him and to burn incense. This is God's word. You can be seated. Right, you're getting just a little background, I think, even by reading that text. But if you could be a time traveler and go back to this time and wander about Jerusalem... I think you'd be utterly horrified, repulsed by what you would see. Like, let me just show you a PowerPoint of Yerushalayim. Um, not the most clear, but hopefully in the middle you can identify the Dome of the Rock. In that day, that is where the temple would have stood. Today, it's a Muslim mosque, so you can understand why there's a lot of tension over that. It's good. Now, if you go down, you're going down into the Kidron Valley. As you go up, you're going up to the Mount of Olives. So if we could travel back in time, we would see three temples perched on the Mount of Olives. These are temples that Solomon built for his pagan wives because his heart turned away from Yahweh and his heart turned towards the, 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 the gods of his wives. You'd have a shrine or a temple to Chemosh. You'd have a, a shrine or a temple to Molech. And you'd have a shrine or a temple to Asherah. The reason I show you this is because you can see just in the layout of the city how those three temples would cast this whole shadow over the city. Dominate it. And what I want you to see is that Jerusalem was not just a city with idols. It was a city devoted to idols. Okay, you can turn that off. Now we can fast forward 100 or 200 or no more, more like 250 years to Hezekiah's father, who's King Ahaz. 
And when you turn over to chapter 28 to verse 4, it says, King Ahaz offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Now, what does that mean? Well, under every spreading tree is an expression used throughout the Bible to describe the worship of Asherah. Because the tree is the sign of fertility, Asherah is the pagan goddess of fertility, and you need to know fertility gods in that day were the gods of choice. And when you think fertility, don't just think, I need to get pregnant, but think all of life, the whole spectrum of human life, because Asherah was the goddess who promised to be the protector and the giver of life. Now, does anyone know her name in English? Easter. And yes, eggs have always, of course, been associated with the worship of this god. It's the goddess of fertility. There's a reason, too, when you read the Old Testament, why it always talks about the Asherah pole. Because the pole is a phallic symbol. And the way you worship Asherah is through shrine prostitution. So now hear these words. Under every spreading tree. So you're traveling through Israel. And the landscape is just full of these poles. They are everywhere. And the things going on here are so degrading and so perverse. I tell you this because I think so many of us just think of idol worship as just kind of getting a little statue and, and, and ignorantly worshiping it, it in your home. Idol worship is perversion of the worst kind. It's dark. It's demonic. It's so demonic that Look at verse 3 of chapter 28. King Ahaz burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Know this. The worship of Baal, especially Molech, the highest expression of worship to these gods was to take your child and to throw him in the fire. In fact, the Bible calls this passing through the fire. I'll just show you a PowerPoint of an artist's rendition of this based on um, archaeological evidence, and I don't know if you have the one with uh, Moloch or Baal. Just imagine that. Now, the, the, the place where this was done in, in Judah was in Jerusalem, in the Hinnom Valley. I want to just show you that really quick. Interestingly enough, where we lived when we lived in Israel was on this side of the picture. And then on this side of the picture is Mount 
Zion or Mount Zion, and that's their picture of hell. So I had to walk through hell to get to Zion almost every day because that building to the right is JUC, where I went to school. But anyway, that's, well, let me just say this. Um, what's the Greek word for Hinnom Valley? Anybody know? Gehenna. And this is a word that Jesus often uses. Our Bibles will translate Gehenna as hell because this became where they offered their kids to the fires. This was Jesus' picture of hell. So God's king is actually leading God's flock into this dark, demonic hell. It's why the, the, the prophets are, are, are so graphic. Um, you can read Jeremiah 2, verse 20. You can read Isaiah 57, verse 5. The words there are, Under every, every spreading tree, O Israel, O Judah, you played the whore. Now, I think that we would be really naive to think that the worship of Asherah and Molech and Baal are only for that world. Because in my mind, the worship of these gods is alive and well today. They're just packaged differently. How many millions of children passed through the fire, unborn children passed through the fire alone in this last year? How many lives today are being destroyed, families being destroyed, marriages being destroyed, innocence being destroyed through sexual immorality, sexual perversion. I mean, these gods, they reign in our land. And the chaos that they're unleashing, in my mind, is horrific. And yet our culture says it's just the norm and it's Harmless. Now, King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, even goes so far as to literally close shop in the temple. I mean, first he rapes it of all its gold, its silver, its expensive stones. Then the temple literally becomes a place for trash. It's infested with rot until finally the temple... It's boarded up like an abandoned building. The temple, God's house, the true vine, the tree of life, the holy of holies. So it's into this setting then that King Hezekiah enters the story. And I want you to feel the excitement of verse 2. And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. Now we once again have a Davidic king on the throne who's wholehearted to God, a man after God's own heart. The first thing, the first thing that this Davidic king does is look at verse 3. He opens the doors to God's house. And he repairs them. 
And what I want us to see, because of how this reads, I believe Hezekiah did this himself with his own hands. So picture him going to this abandoned building, taking it upon himself to open up the doors to God's house and to repair them because as God's king, what he's doing is he's preparing to lead God's people back to the true vine. And I love that. In fact, 2 Kings also gives us this detail. He goes into the temple and he destroys the Nehushtan. Does anybody know what the Nehushtan is? Do you remember the bronze serpent in the wilderness? Moses erected. Well, they kept it. They turned this thing into an idol. So here comes Hezekiah in Davidic fashion. He crushes the head of the serpent. That's what's going on. The next thing he does is he calls all the priests and the Levites because it's their job to care and to cultivate the garden of the Lord. So he gathers them and he basically says, go clean this mess up. Get rid of all the filth. You guys restore the garden. Restore God's house. In fact, I love what he says in verse 6. He says, our parents were unfaithful. They They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They forsook him. They turned their faces away from him. From the Lord's Mishkan, the Lord's dwelling place, they turned their backs on him. Basically what he's saying is, look, we need God. We need Mishkan. We need the tree of life. We need to be connected to the vine. Because when God's house becomes anything less than it's supposed to be, Anything less than a tree of life, anything less than a true vine, anything less than God's dwelling place, this is what God's king does. God's king is God's son. And that house is his father's house. And how dare you turn my father's house into a trash heap? My father's house. We call it a house of prayer. And I love this. You read verse 15. The priests and the Levites respond to Hezekiah and they, they do it. Because the sheep follow the shepherd. The temple is cleansed. Now notice in verse 17 what day they begin. What day is it? New Year's Day. <laughs> Why New Year's Day? Were you guys here on New Year's Day? What did God instruct on New Year's Day? This is the day he set up tabernacle. They're obeying Torah. Then notice also the eighth day, they entered the holy place. Why eighth day? Because eighth day in the Bible is the first day of new creation. Israel now is being born again. And then in verse 18, the priests and Levites come back to Hezekiah and they say, okay, it's ready. Verse 20. Just like Abraham in Genesis 22, early the next morning, 
Hezekiah arises like a little kid on Christmas. He gathers all those in leadership and all the leaders of, of, of his house, of his court, they enter God's house because he's calling all the high-ranking members of Judah to worship Yahweh. This is Joshua. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now, I love verse 29. Please picture this. And when the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him, they knelt down. They just got right on their knees and they worshiped. Now Hezekiah is ready to lead God's people to God's house to reconnect the people to the true vine. So look at verse 31. When Hezekiah said, then Hezekiah said, you have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. This word in verse 31, and the assembly. It's what Barry said today when he said, I thank the congregation. That's what assembly means. The, the, the word for Greek in assembly is what? Does anybody know? Ecclesia. It's, it, in fact, ecclesia becomes a pretty big deal in the New Testament. But this word is also found all over the Old Testament. And the way we translate ecclesia is the word church. Church is not just a New Testament idea. It goes all the way back to Genesis 28 verse 3 when Isaac blesses Jacob and says, May the mighty God bless you. May he give you descendants and may he increase you until you become an ecclesia, a gathering of all peoples. And so church or assembly is simply God's people gathered. And so what you need to picture here is you have the church now swarming to God's house. And so many people came that the priests, the text says, were too few. They didn't have enough priests. Now this thing doesn't stop. I mean, it only keeps getting better because now Hezekiah is going to implement uh, the Torah, the instruction of God. It's going to become the instruction for the whole land and, and included in, in Torah because we think of Torah as, as the Ten Commandments. Are you kidding? Torah is the 613 instructions of God. Included in Torah is God's calendar. His appointed feasts. So Hezekiah starts this thing with Pesach. Passover. Why Passover. Well, Passover celebrates the biggest event in Israel's history. It celebrates when they became a nation. 
when God found them in their misery, when God unleashed his rule, when God provided for them an exodus, when God provided for them a way when there was no way, a way out of the most hopeless situation in the world. Passover is when God took his people to himself to be his bride, to be a nation of priests. And it's called Passover because all of this centers on a little tiny lamb that's slaughtered. And it's through the slaughtered lamb and that lamb's blood that God makes a way. So notice verses 5 and 6. Hezekiah now, he, he's not only instituting Passover, he's not only sending out his couriers to his people, but he's going for the whole enchilada here. He's sending them out to the whole northern kingdom too. And then when you look at verse 10, as these couriers go out, the men of Israel mock them. Because what Hezekiah is doing, is, is, it, it's crazy. It's cultural, culturally idiotic. It is. But I love it. In verse 11, it said there were some in Israel who humbled themselves and made their way to Jerusalem. In fact, one of the things I can't help but wonder about is this. What would have happened if Israel's king, the king of the northern kingdom, had accepted Hezekiah's invitation? Because do you know that within five years of this, the northern kingdom will be completely destroyed? They will be exiled and the ten tribes of Israel will be no more. Gone. Verse 13. Please sense the excitement here. People from all over the land returning. Teshuvah, repenting. They're coming to be a part of this great assembly, to be a part of this church that's returning to God. They're arriving to Jerusalem in droves. And what's the first thing they do when they get there? (laughs) This is awesome. They remove all the pagan altars. Who? The people. The people. In other words, the sheep, they're following their shepherd. You see, there's so many things I love about Hezekiah as they're celebrating Passover. Now remember, too, this would be the first time these priests and Levites would have ever done this. In verse 22, it says, Hezekiah, he's, he's going around speaking words of encouragement to these guys. Hey, guys, I believe in you. You guys are awesome. You guys are doing such a great job. Keep it going. King. One more thing that I want to point out, verse 15 says, they slaughtered the Passover land on the 14th day of the second month. Now what's wrong with this picture? See, we don't know the calendar. Passover, 14th day, first month. But see, Hezekiah, he can't wait another year. So what he does is 
he prays. He says, God, please see our hearts. See the hearts of your people. We're humbling ourselves before you. We're seeking your face. We're turning from our wickedness. Your people are teshuvah. They're repenting. And verse 20 might be one of my most favorite texts in the Bible. And the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer, and he healed. He healed the people. The Lord healed them. Because God says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Verse 26, the fruit of this obedience is joy. There's joy throughout the land. And the fruit of their obedience doesn't stop. Turn now to chapter 31. Look at verse 1. I just want to scream when I read that. It's so awesome. All the people went through all the land and tore down all those phallic symbols and those idols and that perversion. They got rid of it. And why is this going on? Well, if you don't mind now, I'll dive into 2 Kings 18, verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That even includes David. And listen to what it says. He clung. He clung to the Lord. Doesn't your heart long for a king like this? I mean, we need a king like this. Listen. We have a king like this. And a king who's even so much more than this. A king who wants to awaken you so you can awaken the world. He wants to heal you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to draw you into himself so he can send you out into the land and you can be an agent of his healing and his cleansing in the world. I'm desperate for this right now. I long for it. There's a second part to this story. Because at this time, a, a, a great power is rising in the east. And this power is on the move. It's raping, it's pillaging, 
It's destroying, it's exiling anything that stands in its way. So go back to Second Chronicles. By the way, I love to hear the pages of the Bible turning. After all that, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, and he laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. In other words, this fierce superpower has now set its sights on Judah. And something you need to know, as much as you want Judah to be this lion, this tiger, throughout the biblical story, from an earthly perspective, in comparison to the nations of the world, Judah is barely a field mouse in a world of cats. Assyria has become a raging lion. So from an earthly perspective, you need to understand this is a hopeless situation. But look at Israel's king. In verses 2 through 6, Hezekiah moves into the chaos. He acts, he leads, he plans. In fact, this reminds me of, of Moses when the people are between Pharaoh's chariots and the Red Sea, and they're crying out to God, and, and Moses is crying out to God. God just says to Moses, stop crying out to me and do something. Yeah. There's a time to do something. And so Hezekiah, he strengthens the wall. He develops weapons. He organizes his army. In fact, underneath Jerusalem is a spring called Gihon that provides water for the entire city. The problem, though, with this spring is that it flows outside the city walls. So when the army comes, they get the water, the people don't. So Hezekiah redirects this spring through an amazing engineering feat. It's still there to this day, called Hezekiah's Tunnel. I'll just show it to you really quick, only because can't wait to be back there in a couple of months, even as claustrophobic as I am. Um, uh, There's my kids in it, and I'm telling you, this thing is a 45-minute walk through a tunnel that wide and water up to your legs, and there you go, okay? And it even gets really narrow and short, and at that time, I'm in complete panic mode. (laughs) This is real. This is a real story. And then I love it because Hezekiah then gathers all his his, his military generals and and soldiers and he speaks words of encouragement to them. He says, Hazak, be strong and courageous. Who else spoke these words? God spoke these words to Joshua. Hazak, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua then spoke those words to his people. Back to Zach, be strong. It's Hezekiah's name. Hazak Yah. My strength is Yah. He 
he's living up to his name, and he's calling his people to live up to that name. Hazak! Then the situation becomes even more hopeless. Because then you read verse 9, and it says, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces, who were laying siege at Lachish, sent officers to Jerusalem with a message for Hezekiah. And then when you add 2 Kings 18 to 13, which describes all of this in more detail, it tells us all the fortified cities of Judah have fallen. Jerusalem stands alone. And I want you to feel for a moment the horror and the terror that would have gripped Jerusalem. Because archaeologists have uncovered Sennacherib's palace. And what we know because of their findings is that Sennacherib adorned his palace with carvings that depicted all his victories. And they're recorded in such bloody detail. Lachish happens to be one of the victories that the archaeologists have have uncovered. And so in graphic detail, we know that Sennacherib did more than kill and destroy. He ruthlessly tortured his victims. Many of the captured soldiers would be strung up and flayed alive. Their skins would then be nailed to the city wall. Others would just get the axe to their arms, their feet, even private parts were chopped off and they were just left to bleed to death. Eyes would be gouged out. And listen, this was done to women. It was done to children. High-ranking officials would be impaled. They'd take a long post shove it in, inside one's organs, they'd lift them up, and they would die this agonizing death that sometimes took as long as three days. Everybody else would be exiled. The way they did this is they put a, a hook in the, in the nose, a hook in the mouth, they strung them up by the hundreds, and then walked them hundreds of miles. Then the ar- army would go to the next city. And as it approached its next victim, it would usually try to get there at night. Because then throughout the night, they would impale, they would flay prisoners from the previous city, they'd burn them alive, they'd torture them. So the people in the city heard these screams all night long. And they'd wake up the next day, they'd look outside their walls, they'd see this vast army surrounding the city, And they'd sometimes see fellow countrymen, friends and cousins, impaled, hanging up on these posts, still alive. So when Hezekiah hears that Sennacherib is devouring all his fortified cities, he panics. His first instinct is a bad one. You can read about this in 2 Kings 18. Because rather than seeking God, it's like this mouse now pleads with this fierce lion. Just like his father Ahaz, he rapes the temple of all its restored gold, all its beauty, all its glory. Verse 17 then says in 2 Kings 18 that the king then sends his vast army 
to Jerusalem. And the Rabshakeh, Sennacherib's highest ranking general, stands outside the walls, the text says, almost like Goliath, and he taunts Hezekiah. Where's your hope now, Hezekiah? Are you still going to trust your God, Hezekiah? And then in Goliath fashion, he mocks Yahweh. And go to 1 Kings right now, because I want to show you Hezekiah's response to this. In 2 Kings 19.1, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. This guy knows where to go. Then Hezekiah, the text says, gets a second message. This one is from Sennacherib himself. Sennacherib essentially says, Hezekiah, stop trusting your worthless God. I'm coming. I'm going to crush you. And you need to know from an earthly perspective, this is an utterly hopeless situation. I mean, looking out over those walls day after day, seeing the horror of this vast army and all that they're doing, You know what? Some of you are there today. It may be your marriage. It may be a situation at work. It may be one of your kids. It may be your own life. As you look out over the walls of your life, it's hopeless. Utterly hopeless. What do you do? Where do you go? Who do you turn to? Do you have a place? Again, look at where Hezekiah goes. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from Sennacherib, and then he went to the house of the Lord. And he spread it before the Lord. And look at what he prays. Lord, the God of Israel enthroned, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You're the one who made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, Lord. Listen. Sennacherib has made a mockery of you, O Lord. And then at the end he says, Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. When's the last time you turned to God like this? When's the last time you just ran to him? You laid your burden before him. God, I'm I'm helpless. Here it is. God, I'm giving you my my marriage. God, I'm giving you this relationship. God, I give to you my kids. God, I give to you my future. God, this situation that's so hopeless, I I just give it to you. I give you my life. 
When's the last time your family has done this? When's the last time this church has turned to God like this? Desperation. Here I pray. Do you know that when there is no way, God will make a way? That's the God of the Bible. It can be even in the most utterly hopeless situation. It's the hope of Passover. That God will make a way when there is no way. That God will provide an exodus. He will provide a way out. Do you trust him for this? Do you go to him desperately seeking this? Look at what God does. I love this. First in verse 28, he tells Sennacherib, you're the one I'm going to string up by the nose and by the mouth. I'm going to lead you back to where you came from. In fact, Hezekiah is going to meet his ruin there. Then in verse 29, Hezekiah, in the first year of this, in the second year of this, but Hezekiah in the third year will come Jerusalem's resurrection. Just like in the next chapter, which I don't have time to read, on the third day, Hezekiah, will come your resurrection. Because the number three in the Bible always signifies resurrection. Abraham, Joseph, Moses and the people, Joshua and the people, Jonah, they all receive a sort of resurrection on the third day day. In Hosea 6, after two days, God will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. And see, what you need to see in this text is that God's deliverance here is portrayed as a Passover event. And this is first hinted in 2 Kings 18 verse 13, where it says, in the 14th year, and this all is going to culminate, I'll let you read the story, with the angel of the Lord going through the Assyrian camp and striking down 185,000 soldiers with a plague. So that the next day they wake up, they look out over the wall, and they're dead. And they rise. This is Passover. This is what Exodus is. It's resurrection. It's two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will restore us. And see, all this Passover does, all this resurrection does, even this great king Hezekiah do, they only point us to a greater Passover, to a greater resurrection, to a great, great king. Because we today not only have a king who opens the door to God's house, but he is the door and he is the house of God. He is the true vine. And he invites us today to come and to enter. And he invites us to pass over. 
where he can heal us and restore us. Where he still offers us today exodus, a way when there is no way, a way out of Egypt, a way out of the pit. All because of the blood of the lamb. This king, our king, my king, is the Passover lamb. He is the meal, and his blood covers, it cleanses, and it heals. And you and I today live in a world full of bales, full of ashers, full of chaos. There is a kingdom of darkness that's threatening to undo us. Have you personally experienced his exodus? His healing, his cleansing, his forgiving. Have you come to his feast? Because he is the king, and I can say right now, as one of his couriers, I'm telling you, he's inviting you to come. To give up, to give up your idols, to give up living life for you, to return, to return and join the throng, the assembly, the church, in humbling ourselves, in bowing face down before him, where we seek him with all of our heart, where we feast on the Lamb. And I don't care who you are, what you've done, this king is inviting you to come and to feast on him. Let's pray. Well, you guys just have your heads bowed. And I want to do it this way. I got a P.S., I have a PS for dads. Dad, you are called to operate as kings and priests in your home. And I say, you be a Hezekiah. I call you today. I call myself today to cleanse our home of idols, to point our our family to Christ. Zach, be strong, be courageous. And then I know this morning, some of you, right now, when you look outside the walls onto your own life, it looks hopeless. And if you're there right now, would you just please raise your hand? I want to pray for you. If there are any dads in this room, are sick of it. You want a clean house in your own house. Raise your hand. Ooh, I got my hand up. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Cleanse us. Cleanse me. Cleanse our homes. 
I pray, Lord, for resurrection. I pray for healing, cleansing all that you have to offer. Let us rise. Let your church rise. And for those this morning who are facing a hopeless situation, I say, show yourself strong, O oh Lord. Be the king. Be our king. In Jesus' name.